0: Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Route podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Editorial Team. I'm reporter Hannah Bowler and on this week's episode I welcome Ender's Analysis, Jill Hind. I'm catching up with her about the big TV news from this week, the results of C4's delayed annual report. But before we get to that, I've got broadcast senior reporter Matt Goldbart on the podcast to dig deeper into the BBC's stringent social media guidelines announced on Thursday this week. Hey Max, how are you?
1: Yeah very good thanks. Good to be here once again. I'm in uh, a d- different room than normal because uh, my boiler's being fixed. So the boiler guys get to like listen in on the making of the news wrap which I'm sure is very exciting for them.
0: I know and I get to see your curtains which I've never seen before.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh what a morning, what an absolute morning. Curtains and curtains and boilers.
0: So how's how's things been? Have you had a good week?
1: Yeah, it has, it has been quite interesting, and what we are going to talk about, I think, in brief, before we move on to your chat with Jill Hind from Enders about Channel 4, um, are these BBC guidelines uh, around social media and impartiality. So I have been digging fairly deep into those, and literally, just as, just as, uh, just as we started the pod record on uh, it's Friday morning, the 30th of October, I received an email from to the broadcasting union, highlighted new BBC guidelines causing confusion and distress. So it was like they knew we were doing the pod.
0: They were like setting us up there. Right. So do you want to kind of kick off and maybe talk how it is going to cause distress? I mean, because it's a bit of a minefield over there. So mm. kind of if you could set up some context.
1: Yeah, I think like, so the, the kind of context to this is uh, I think a context that most people are broadly on board with which is one of like Tim Davies absolute like key planks of his approach and he's only been in the job for like six weeks has been impartiality so I think it's like the second of his four big points that he wants to address Uh, and he made very clear in his first week that a big set of guidelines was coming out soon and we are going to grab we the BBC are going to grab hold of kind of that impartiality narrative which we've let slip there are too many people who think we are too left-wing there are too many people who think we're too right-wing there are too many people who think we're too metropolitan so over the summer former head of global news Richard Sambrook at the BBC conducted a review and I believe he's kind of really led on these guidelines which came out yesterday I don't think I certainly didn't expect them to be as detailed as they've been so the BBC already has kind of a set of a set of sort of editorial impartiality guidelines we knew that these were going to be also relating to social media which I think everyone felt was necessary and you could you can look back to examples of the general election coverage where journalists were tweeting things that were incorrect or tweeting things that might have been viewed to be on on a certain political side. And I think there was a there was an exception that these needed to be brought in, but they we probably imagined they would be quite a lot more woolly and quite a lot more kind of general, whereas actually the meat and bones of them is what seems to be upsetting people quite a bit. So I, I had um when they came out, I was kind of wading through them and thinking, yeah, like there is there is some serious detail in here but there's stuff around like protesting and campaigning and going on marches, which is essentially saying that journalists and really senior members of staff and also fat- factual presenters. So people who present like the one show or like woman's hour or shows like that literally like can't campaign and can't be like seen to be at a protest. Uh, and it seems to be in terms of like the big, Headlines coming from this and the big levels of criticism that seems to be where it's being directed. So, just having a look at this handy Bektu release, new BBC guidelines causing confusion and and distress. Bektu has asked the BBC for an urgent meeting to discuss the intentions behind its new guidelines. We are dismayed that unions were not properly consulted prior to the publication of the document. There is a huge amount of confusion and conjecture regarding what the guidelines mean. So, I think some of this might relay. I, I had a couple of people messaging me yesterday talking about, uh, for example, LGBT journalists or journalists who are keen to protest on LGBT issues now believe that they are not allowed to... I don't think anyone ever imagined that's how this would have ended up. I think people thought it would be much more like, Laura Koonsberg, stop tweeting so often. <laughs> that, that's, that's where people thought this might have been heading.
0: Yeah, like blanket, blanket bans, is quite dramatic and quite radical. And I, mm-hmm. I was thinking as well, how this extends to the indies. I think that was something that I was quite surprised at. I understood the presenter side or, or people, uh, talent say, uh, but I would really like to understand from you how the indies and their suppliers play into this and how they can also restrict what they're up to on social media.
1: Yeah, I think again, cause obviously it's, it's the sort of thing that we're interested in, but maybe lots of the press aren't so interested in which is kind of like the impact on third party producers it seems so it seems to be twofold indies who are producing social media content that's associated with the bbc or with a bbc show have to stick to the guidance so that's something new but then the other the other kind of interesting thing about this which i suppose doesn't come as a massive surprise is that it's so that the kind of stringent side of the social media guidelines, as I said, apply to journalists and really senior members of staff, but they also there is some list somewhere of really high profile presenting talent who are involved with the BBC who also have to stick to these guidelines, even if they're not in the news world or the factual world, and some of them will not be employed by the bbc so we're so we're uh, kind of. Uh, well, I'm in the process of trying to think who that might be, or trying to work that out. So the, the first thing I think that that most journalists did was ask the BBC press team if Gary Lineker was on this list. And so he, so he is deemed high profile enough that he will need to stick to these more stringent social media guidelines. I don't quite know, you know, the repercussions for like Gary Lineker tweeting something in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm not quite sure how that would end up. But it does seem like that's something that they don't want people like him to be doing anymore.
0: And do these get baked into contracts?
1: So I think if you're, say, yeah, say you're an indie or you're contracted sort of temporarily as a freelancer by the BBC, then there is already something in your contract that says you have to stick to the editorial guidelines, the kind of guidelines and impartiality that have been around for forever. So I think, again, the, these would be written into a contract but it, but it's tricky. I I had one, um, some, somebody, some such person like a contributor who is engaged by the BBC every so often, who is engaged in like opinion led programming. And he was messaging me yesterday and he was saying, I, I like, what could this possibly mean for me? I'm sort of engaged to like, make, to say opinions. And that's what the BBC wants me to do. But at the same time, if this stuff is going to be baked into a contract, and involved with with the way that I behave on BBC programs, then do I now have to be more careful, or or am I exempt? So there's there's loads of there's a lot of confusion. I think it's mainly I'm not sure that they needed to go into such depth related to to protests and and marches and whatnot. And I I think it also it leaves a little bit of a bad taste because if you're suddenly turning around and telling journalists not to tweet about like Black Lives Matter. That, that, that that's a that's an issue that is hugely prevalent for a lot of the younger bbc journalists and like it was only a few weeks ago that we had the the scandal with the use of the n-word and that caused like from what i understand loads of of black journalists and asian journalists to to complain right up the ladder at the the, the ridiculousness of the situation so i think now to have had that a few weeks ago and now to be told you need to be really, really careful in your support for a movement like Black Lives Matter. I think it's going to leave a bit of a bad taste, to be honest.
0: So back to, to meetings or the backlash that's going to happen from it, do you think that the BBC would scale back anything that they have put forward if the backlash is so great?
1: I, I doubt it because, it's again, it, this sort of all feeds into the Tim Davy impartiality approach and I can't now that he's gone hard on impartiality I would be surprised if if he was to row back I did see that direct the director of news Fran Unsworth has apologized for the very stra- I thought there's a really strange use of virtue signaling so in the guidelines the BBC is telling people not to virtue signal but virtue virtue signaling itself is quite a loaded term right like virtue signaling makes me think of like like extremely right-wing commentators in the way that they speak about uh, metropolitan liberal elites. But that's quite, it's odd in the guidelines because I would think in another world, if a BBC journalist was to use the term virtue signaling, then they themselves might get in trouble. It feels everything's sort of going around in a circle. So th- there's been an apology around that. Uh, I mean, maybe uh, what I imagine will happen now if like is kicking off Journalists are kicking off. There'll surely be some sort of I don't know, like big meeting or or big like explanatory. Clearly, they've not been explained well enough. I don't think. So that's to come. There's a there's a um like town hally style meeting next week. I think with with Tim Davy and Fran Unsworth and people. So maybe maybe they'll touch on it more then. But I don't know if they could have anticipated this backlash. But again, uh, as as ever, the the BBC just loves to score its own goal, and this just feels like one of those.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for letting me pick your brain. Also on this week's podcast, because uh, this week, uh, alongside with the BBC guidelines, we had the quite large news uh, about Channel 4's annual report, which was the 2019 report, but delayed to include information around uh, COVID and the impact of COVID. So that kind of dominated things. So up next, we have an interview with the brilliant Jill Hind from Enders Analysis. And she just helps us kind of dig down deeper into Channel 4's annual report. But thanks, Max. It was great chatting to you.
1: Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure.
0: We're going to welcome Jill Hind. She is CEO and uh, Director of Television at Enders Analysis.
2: Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, so uh, this week it was the 2019 Channel 4 annual report which they unveiled, uh, which was yesterday. So the 29th uh, of October. And obviously the main kind of headlines from that is that C4 have bounced back and saying to the industry that they are financially stable again and the ad market has recovered. That's kind of the main uh, headline. So Joe, I wondered if you could maybe kind of go through your key takeaways that you took
2: Sure. Well, uh, as we said, it's actually you're releasing right at the end of October. They're releasing the 2019 um, annual report, so it's a slightly, slightly strange time. If we just take 2019 as, as, as the base, actually, they performed pretty well in 2019. There was a, there was a small, uh, small deficit which would have been planned for, and the reason they had that was actually for a lot of investment for their strategy of um, all four in the UK, where uh, obviously that's investment into new headquarters in Leeds and Bristol and Glasgow. Um, and also they had some digital investments as well. In terms of the revenues for last year, actually their, their ad revenues were down in line with the market, but they performed pretty strongly on the digital revenues. They were up quite significantly. Uh, so, you know, 2019 was, was a, a pretty good year for them. And obviously in terms of hitting their, their remit, as ever Channel 4 sort of over, over-delivered on, on all of their reputational statements. And again, they're incredibly important in terms of the amount that they invest in the indie sector and total, t- total um, content investment of you know, 660 and just under 500 million on original content. So that's great. But obviously, we're now in a, in a very, very different world. And like like every single broadcaster and every company around the UK, it sort of, it's hitting hit very badly. So in, uh, what Channel 4 did do very early on in that, though, in, um, sort of just after lockdown started in April, is they actually took quite a lot of good measures. So they reduced their programming budget by about 150 million pounds then and put in nearly another 100 million in cost savings across the organisation. And on top of that, they also threw down on their sort of the commercial, the revolving credit facility of uh, £75 million, pounds, which they haven't touched at all. And, uh, you know, so advertising was hit uh, in line with the market. It was down nearly 50% in April and May, which is, you know, absolutely staggering. staggering. You know, we've never seen that in, in advertising across any month ever. We've never seen a, a big decline such as that. Uh, not even in any previous recession, the maximum has only ever been about sort of less than 20%. So, you know, that really shows how badly Channel 4 and every broadcaster was hit. But the market has bounced back quite significantly over the last couple of months and going into what is the, to, tends to be the, the heaviest spending month of the year of November, which is, which is obviously just coming up. And, you know, we, uh, we saw STV, who they announced their results a couple of weeks ago, for theirs, and they announced then that actually August was up year on year. Channel 4 haven't gone into it as, as much detail on a monthly bit, but, you know, our understanding of the TV market is that actually October's done pretty well. November's going to be up year on year as well. And probably the market itself might end up down about sort of, you know, 12 13% now possibly across the entire year. And Channel 4 would be probably perform slightly better than that in the market because just so happens the money's coming back. November time, October, November time, they have the bigger shows of Bake Off, so there, you'll imagine they'll do pretty well in comparison to the rest of the market. So things are looking up, and we believe they're actually, as they've announced today, that there'll be a, a, a surplus this year as well for 2020.
0: Could you drill down a little bit more into where the surplus is coming from?
2: Uh, well, what they've done is they've obviously reduced their programme investment uh, quite significantly for, for 2020. Their revenues, they've, I think they, they've they'd, not budgeted but they're sort of everyone been sort of thinking actually what's the worst case scenario and actually they haven't hit that worst case scenario in terms of the ad market so there's actually some sort of you know they are bouncing back a bit in, in terms of having reduced the costs and taking money out of the business and actually the ad market's now doing slightly better than they thought and i, I believe they've even announced they're going to pay back the uh, government furlough scheme
0: i was thinking i mean from the reporting everything feels like it's quite rosy for 2021 I mean, how much do you feel like that is a reality or or is that kind of, say, over enthusiasm or or do you think the bounce back for 2021 is in line with what they can deliver?
2: Uh, I mean, I I don't think the position is really rosy for any company going into 2021. We we clearly don't know what's going to happen with uh, potentially another lockdown coming on, definitely within some parts of the country. And of course, we've got the Brexit issue as well, which is likely to affect advertising sentiment at the start of the year. So it's very difficult to work out. Actually, how how ad mar- the ad market's is going to rebound next year. Having said that, they're quite well positioned within it. Their audiences are doing pretty well. Um, obviously, what we've seen during lockdown, everyone's watching more television, whether they're watching broadcasters or whether they're watching Netflix or whether they're playing games. But Channel Four's audience share within within, within broadcasters has, has done pretty well. So. They are and uh, they're also investing and have been investing heavily in all four. So digital this digital viewing they announced today is up quite significantly in 2019 and again, of course, up hugely um, during lockdown. And we'll expect to see that with the wide content that they have um, on all four. You'd expect to see that increasing as well.
0: Yeah, the increase of 27 percent. Uh, across the year is is massive it's really really crazy and uh was it 20 percent in revenue i think they they quoted they expect to bring in at the end of 2020 kind of looking at all four what kind of approach do you think channel four are going to be taking in kind of all four commissioning do you think they'll follow the suit of itv and bbc where they've announced broad platform first commissioning approach or do you think uh, channel four still kind of play to the to the linear
2: well, I think when you look at ITV just recently announced was it one or two weeks ago actually it wasn't it wasn't just a, it wasn't really a VOD platform for first what they were doing was they were separating out their huge linear programming that they have with a much smaller budget that they have uh, for for VOD uh so they're actually making it more distinct so the VOD bit wouldn't really get lost within their sort of the commissioning for the Amazon deck type shows with absolutely millions of, of audience in terms of channel four they will be first and foremost, they'll be thinking about the linear, because that's what's driving 70% of the revenue, 75, 80% of their total corporate revenues. But of course, you've got the awful platform, and then we'll be considering an awful lot of, in terms of what shows they can license onto that platform as well. Um, and it's about getting those shows and putting them on as many different um, platforms as you can.
0: Obviously, a lot of the conversation was around privatization. Do you think, I don't know if you actually watched the um, the briefing with uh, Alex Mayhorn and Ian Katz? But at the end, the Q&A, as has been the case a lot of the time lately, um, is kind of around dispelling the privatisation talks and her response, look at our achievements in the last six months through the pandemic, this shows our stability and this is why we're not in this position to be privatised. Do you think that stands up and do you think that that is a good argument and it will kind of keep at bay those privatisation talks?
2: So, I mean... Privatisation seems to rear its head every three or four years with Channel 4, and it's always on the argument that Channel 4 as a company is not sustainable. I think we've seen over the past 20, 30 years that it clearly is sustainable. We've seen in the 2019 results, it absolutely is. And what we've seen during lockdown is at the end of 2020, they're going to be in an operating surface. So if they can be sustainable in what is probably going to be the worst year for broadcast revenue ever and probably going forwards, if they can be sustainable in the really, really bad times, they'll continue to be sustainable going forwards. You know, un- understandably, po- uh, politicians are always going to say, are always going to have a look and say, should we be privatising Channel 4? There is a public service broadcasting review that's coming up, or we're in the middle of, and, you know, they've got to ask all those difficult questions. But actually, if you want to have a, you know, Channel 4 is sustainable in its, in its current form, uh, and if you were to privatise it, you wouldn't end up having a fantastic, diverse programming that we that can't get on Channel Four, and all that investment in UK content. But in terms, I mean, in terms of the independent in production sector, Channel Four punches way above its weight in, in terms of commissioning through them. So if you were to go back to the privatisation question, should it be privatised? Actually, if someone were to come and acquire that company, they wouldn't uh, they would ask to have that remit relaxed quite significantly. Because actually, if you wanted if you wanted to buy a, uh, a television company and try and make money out of it, you definitely wouldn't have that channel going, really. and that would only be to the detriment of the UK independent sector and wider production sector.